Welcome to this Interactive Investor podcast. Today, I'm joined by musician turned millennial money expert, Iona Bain. A financial journalist, Iona created the Young Money blog in 2011 and is here today to talk about her latest book, Own It, How Our Generation Can Invest Our Way to a Better Future. The book, which covers topics including the nuts and bolts of investing, saving for a home and workplace pensions, manages to both entertain and educate and references well-known figures from Warren Buffett and Terry Smith to Haruki Murakami and Gloria Steinem. Iona, in the book, you say that there's never been a better time to start investing. Could you explain to would-be investors why that is, given some people might be nervous about dipping their toe in after hearing about the market turmoil surrounding COVID-19 and the current state of the economy? I totally understand why people feel nervous about investing at the best of times, but it seems particularly daunting when there has been so much turmoil over the past year. And there have been some really strange headline grabbing events in the stock market as well. And and these have confounded even the most seasoned experts. So this period, I think, is really a reminder as to how unpredictable investing can be. And that's important to remember when you start investing. But I do stand by my claim that there has never been a best time to start investing for a few reasons. Firstly, COVID is undoubtedly the most seismic event that's happened in our lifetimes. And it's bound to prompt some big changes within our society and at an economic level as well. And I think our generation has a brilliant opportunity to get in at the ground floor of the economic recovery, which is already beginning as we start to unlock. Any investor who is able to take advantage of the big stock market crash that happened in 2008, any investor who was able to you know, get some money together and start investing after that downturn would have benefited from some very strong returns over the past decade. Now, I do make it clear in the book that, firstly, the past is not necessarily a perfect guide to the future. And uh, more specifically, that returns are predicted to be lower in the future. We might not see the same easy wins that we had over the past decade. So, you know, it was entirely possible to buy an exchange traded fund that was tracking the S&P 500 and to make some really great returns from that. Uh, You wouldn't have had to have given it that much thought, in all honesty. And that might not happen in the same way over the next 10 years. We could start to see more of a correction, particularly in the US stock market, which is looking very expensive. Those big tech stocks that have been going gangbusters, might not do quite as well in the future, especially if inflation takes off. And I think that means investors will have to go a bit deeper and maybe be more thoughtful in their choices, curate their portfolios a bit more. Uh, But nonetheless, I think there will still be returns to reward investors who are patient and are prepared to do their homework. And I think there's never been an easier time to start investing either, because there have been so many innovations in recent times that have really opened up the stock market to the person in the street. So I think Now you can start investing with very little money through your phone. You can open a Stocks and Shares ISA with a few taps on an app. And that wasn't possible even 10 years ago. So the technology has come on leaps and bounds even in the past five years. And that can present some problems and and some dangers too, which I'm sure we'll come on to. But nonetheless, I think that when people say to me, I don't know how to start investing. This seems totally beyond me. I say to them, well, actually, you'd be surprised at just how easy it is to start. And you don't need that much money either. You could start investing £50 a month. And I think a lot of people out there do have a spare £50 if they think carefully about their spending. uh, And they can be putting that into their pots for their future goals. 
And also, I think share ownership, when it works properly, is, is a fantastic thing. It keeps companies accountable. It keeps the system working. It, it holds chief executives' feet to the fire. If we have younger people really channeling that clear activism that they're expressing in so many parts of their lives, uh, if they start to express that through their investments, then that's when we can start to see real change. So it sounds a little bit hyperbolic when I start the book by saying, you know, you have now taken the biggest step when you start investing in, you know, not just changing your future, but the future of the world. Uh, I do actually believe that to be true. I think investing is the best way that we can affect that change at, at a systemic level. As you point out in Own It, before anyone gets stuck into investing, they need to turn a clear eye on their own finances. Can you recommend a beginner's checklist? Sure. Well, firstly, I would say you need to tame your costly debts. And by that, I don't necessarily mean that you can't start investing if you have a mortgage, uh, because lots of people out there will be able to pay their mortgage and invest at the same time. And also, if you have a student loan, uh, I'm not saying that you should necessarily pay that off. It's it's well worth finding out what the terms of your student loan are and, and figuring out whether it's better to just treat that as a graduate tax as opposed to feeling like you need to pay that off before you start investing. But certainly, if you've got credit cards, overdrafts, loans, they will hold you back. So it, it's worth coming up with a repayment plan for those. And, and then to make sure that your credit card debt is, is in its place, because we all need to maintain a credit score and we have to take out credit in order to, to do that, to demonstrate we're reliable borrowers. The key is to just make sure that that credit card borrowing is under control in its place and that we're managing it well. Then I think you need to have a firm grip on your budget. That doesn't mean being obsessive about what you're spending your money on. That's not a recipe for happiness. I just think it's having an awareness of what's coming in and going out and being thoughtful and wise in your spending choices and using your money to really enhance your life rather than letting your environment control you and and being reactive. That is definitely the path to money slipping through your fingers. And then making sure you have some easy access savings because uh, there are certain things in life that you will not expect. You know, we've seen over the past year that anything can happen and we want to have some money that we can grab in an emergency and it's so much easier and more chilled out than borrowing. Definitely make sure you have a few months worth of your earnings in an easy access savings account. And then finally, I would recommend finding out about income protection because that will give you an income if you can't work. And it's especially important if you uh, have a mortgage. I've just taken on a new mortgage and I'm looking to take out an income protection policy because I want to make sure that I'll be okay um, if anything should happen, if I should fall ill. And I don't want to be worrying about that. And you should also look at having life insurance if you've got dependents too. In the book, you cite Interactive Investor's own head of personal finance, Maura O'Neill, in a piece she wrote for the Financial Times. In it, she says... Would you rather have £100 or a 50-50 chance at £200? If you take the £100, you're an investor. If you go all or nothing, you're a gambler. Moira adds that if you expect to double your money quickly, you are probably gambling. Own It is particularly good at tempering beginners' expectations of getting rich quick and highlighting investing red flags. What are some of the pitfalls you think millennials should watch out for? Technology is a double-edged sword here. This is 
how most of us will start our investing journey today. You know, gone are the days where we'll pick up the phone to place some trades with a broker. Technology is here to stay and, and it's going to inevitably dominate the way that we invest. But it is a double-edged sword. You know, yes, you can start investing with very small sums. It, it can be very easy, but there's a danger that it, it becomes too easy. And then that's when it can tip over into being gambling and speculation. And I think over the past year, that has definitely been supercharged in the US by the fact that, I mean, we've all, uh, you know, in the US and the, in the UK, uh, been spending a lot more time at home, more time on our hands. Some people have had more money on their hands. But in the US, they've actually been sending checks directly to people, stimulus checks. They're even called stimmies by traders these days. Uh, and people have sort of seen that as free money. And they've been putting that into the stock market because it's, it's not like their own hard-earned cash. It's money that's been given to them. So they may as well take a punt on it. And so that's influencing this gambling approach that we're now seeing in the stock market. The problem, as Moira identifies, is that there is a, a huge difference between gambling and investing. People say to me when I talk about investing, it's it's no different from gambling, though. I mean, I, if I go and place a bet on the, the euros today, how is that any different from me placing a bet that this company will do well? And then you have to explain, well, the point is that you have no idea whether this team is going to do well in the Euros. Anything could happen to them. Someone could end up being injured. That team could just have a really off day. It is pure chance, really. I mean, you can make educated guesses about it. And, and lots of people do treat gambling as a hobby because they enjoy doing that. They enjoy looking at teams and weighing up how well they'll do. Uh, and, and it's fun. Uh, and hopefully they're not gambling with money that they can't afford to lose. But with investing, it's different because it's about looking at companies and sectors and taking all the information that, that's available and trying to assess how well that company or that sector will do in the short term, the medium term and the long term. That's not just chance. That's based on hard facts. Clever investors look at those hard facts and they make up their minds based on that. They also are not just hoping for a quick win. They're going to be invested for many years. The fortunes of a company can't turn around overnight. A sector or an economy or a region won't post really strong returns in a matter of months necessarily. This is a multi-year, sometimes multi-decade process. You've got to be patient. So I think that these meme stocks that we've seen over the past year that have attracted a lot of popularity like GameStop, I think they're really just proxies for bets, you know, and they form this sort of separate satellite stock market in which people are having some fun, they're taking a punt, and hopefully they are not going to end up being too hurt. But in the main stock market that's rooted in reality, you know, investors are taking a much longer view and they are investing in, in those companies and those regions and sectors that they feel will do best over the long term. So that's the big difference between the two. That's not the same as gambling. sometimes get forgotten in discussions about investing. What's the one pensions tip you'd give to millennials? The biggest tip I can provide is to get informed. There are so many myths surrounding pensions and it's based on people being very unaware of what pensions are, what they do for people. Pensions come with a lot of political and historic baggage that puts people off. And also the very word pension denotes this period that's very far off in the future that's, to be honest, 
close to death. And, and people don't like to think about that for obvious reasons. And so people just don't want to get informed about their pensions. But it's really important that, that everybody understands not only what pensions are, but how much they've changed since they were devised in the early 20th century. So at that time, when, when pensions were first devised, people are only expected to live a few years after their retirement. Life expectancy was just so much shorter then than it is now. We've had miracles of modern medicine, really, meaning that people can live potentially for decades after they retire. And whilst the state is adjusting for that by raising the state pension age, I don't think we'll ever get to a point where we won't have a state pension. You know, people say to me, we're not going to have a pension in the future. I don't know where they're getting that idea from, but I, I think that's very unlikely. But what I think will happen is that that state pension will, will never be able to pay for people to have a kind of rich, fulfilling, multi-decade retirement. And if that's the case, you've got to make your own plans. And the responsibility is falling onto individuals. Uh, and most people are being automatically enrolled into workplace pensions now, which is a really good start, but it's not a silver bullet. And there's a risk that people will just sleepwalk into a poor retirement if they rely purely on that minimum rate that they're contributing into their workplace pension. But you've got to balance your pension with other goals as well. You can't just put all your spare cash into your pension. You know, most of us will have other things that we want to achieve, like getting on the housing ladder. So it's about the art of the doable. You know, how much more can you put into your pension without compromising those important shorter term goals? Anything is, is better than nothing. And I think one of the problems that we've had with pensions is that there's been too much focus on people not saving enough and too much of the stick and not enough of the carrot. So I say to people, whatever you can put into your pension is, is going to make a difference. But at the same time, get informed, find out how much exactly you should be putting in to achieve the kind of standard of living in retirement that you'd be hoping for. And in that respect, I think it's really good to check out the retirement living standards. Just type that into your search engine. It's um, basically a set of standards that was devised by the Pensions and Lifetime Savings Association. And they show you, you know, in really clear terms that this pension pot will get you this type of lifestyle. So you will, at this rate, be able to shop at discount supermarket like Aldi or Lidl. But if you save this amount, you'll be able to shop at Waitrose, that sort of thing. I mean, these are terms that everybody can understand. And then you can make up your own mind. Maybe you don't want to have an ultra luxurious retirement. Maybe you don't want to be going all over the world on saga cruises. That's your choice. But you've got to be informed about that choice. The book's bonus chapter is on your own personal investing diary during the COVID market crash of March 2020 and the subsequent recovery. What are some of the lessons you learned during that turbulent period? Well, um, very often the best thing that you can do in these periods is to do nothing at all. It sounds a bit like a Ronan Keating song. But anyway, um, I think that when you see lots of turmoil happening in the stock market, there is this temptation in all humans to want to do something, anything, because you feel out of control. And over the past year, I think we saw such huge destabilizing events that it would be very difficult for anybody to, to just take an overview and be philosophical about that and say, well, none of this affects me. You know, I, I don't have to worry too much about this. Uh, because there was a time where people really did feel, wow, is, is this it? Are we ever going to see the stock market recover from this? I remember there was a lot of commentary in the spring of 2020 that was extremely pessimistic. The problem as well is that a little knowledge can be a dangerous thing. So as an investor, you will start to put your dip your toes in the water, you'll start to read up a little bit on what's happening out there in the markets. And you'll very quickly discover so many different points of view 
because it's such a live dynamic thing that you will never find two people completely agreeing on what's going to happen to the stock market. And that can be extremely unsettling for, for a beginner investor. So I think that um, when you consider all that noise, you have to come back to why you're investing. You know, really ask yourself, why am I doing this? And, and ultimately, if you're just doing it to make some, some quick money, then you're not in it for the right reasons. You've got to kind of understand, if not what your goals are, then certainly what, what broadly you want out of your life and what, and what you'd like to achieve and what your dreams are. So in the book, I talk about the fact that we can all get very hung up on goals, but actually it might be better to think about what our dreams are. And, you know, you mentioned Gloria Steinem at the top and I use her quote, dreaming is a form of planning. So I think that when you have dreams, you can start to invest towards those dreams. And even if they don't happen, then, hey, you've got some money that you can put towards something else. But ultimately, it is about that that long-term goal and that long-term view. And so when all the craziness is happening around you, you've just got to come back to that and think, is there anything that I can do at this moment in time that's really going to make things better? And that's not to say that you can't, you know, bank some short-term profits in your portfolios, that you don't have to take an interest in what's going on out there in the markets, that, that you know, you just invest and forget. That That's not what I'm advocating. I do think there are some situations where it is appropriate to, to, to take your returns. Um, you, you know, you don't want it to be always jammed tomorrow. Uh, but at the same time, I, I do think most of the time it's better to, to just kind of put your faith in the long-term magic of the stock market. And I realized I'd made a lot of progress as the year went on when I became progressively less obsessed about what was happening in my portfolio to the point where now I can forget about it for a few weeks. Unless something happens out there in the stock market that makes me check, that reminds me to look at my portfolio, I just trust that that it's all happening there and that I've thought through my strategy and that it's going to come good for me one day. Looking ahead, what areas of investing or themes are you most optimistic or excited about for the future? Oh, it's a good question. I feel as if the British stock market is due uh, a recovery. Uh, I think it's definitely been in the doldrums, particularly since Brexit. There was so much uncertainty there that that really tainted the UK stock market. But I, I think that's starting to change now. I mean, Brexit has at least been perceived to be resolved And also, we've had this unbelievable experiment, really, with the economy, whereby we've shut down whole sectors for a year, and and now we're allowing them to reopen. And and yes, there's going to be a bit of what you might call creative destruction. So a lot of businesses might not come back if they weren't particularly uh, productive or, or effective in the first place. But we could start to see lots of innovation uncoiled, really, um, after this last year where so much of our activity has been really dormant. Um, so I think that's that's exciting. And I, I've positioned quite a lot of my medium-term portfolio towards that British recovery. But I haven't completely invested in it because, you know, one of the big watchwords of investing is diversification. You definitely shouldn't put all your eggs in one basket. So I'm not totally banking on the British recovery. I have got investments elsewhere. And I am quite interested in thematic ETFs at the moment as well. I feel like I'm reaching towards a strategy that's a good balance between cheap, unloved companies, value companies, if you like, a few kind of solid blue chip stocks that pay dividends because it's nice to get a bit of income. Um, Some, you know, futuristic sectors, ETFs that are invested in quite exciting technology um, that I think could come good in the future. And 
I think you've got to have exposure to the green revolution in your portfolio. And I mean, obviously, that could be through an explicitly themed ETF, although, you know, I've got a couple of those. They're not doing so well at the moment, but hopefully they'll come back. Uh, But it could also be through the kind of core commodities that will be required to uh, power the green revolution. So we've seen copper, for instance, do very well over the past year, and I've had a little bit of exposure to that sector. Um, And I think uh, there'll, there'll be a lot of opportunities in that area uh, in the years to come. You've got to watch out for greenwashing and there'll be a lot of hype as well to sift through. But but nonetheless, I don't think that detracts from the underlying sort of attractiveness of, of the green play. And finally, I wondered if you could share details of your best and worst investments. I think my best investments overall have been uh, investment trusts, particularly those invested in certain sectors like Japan. Those have started to slow down a little bit in recent times, but actually they really carried my lifetime ISA for, for a while. Um, so I was I was quite pleased about making that decision to invest in Japan. It's been very out of fashion for, for a long time um, because it's disappointed, but uh, I think that could start to change. There's been a blip uh, in recent times, but, but overall I think um, Japan's uh, fortunes are on the up. So yeah, I'm pleased to have been invested in, in in that part of the world through investment trusts. And overall, I'm I'm a big fan of investment trusts. And I, you know, like to see if I can get mine on a good discount. That's not always the, the way to go. I mean, investment trusts can be on a discount for a good reason sometimes. But generally speaking, I, I have done pretty well by looking for those ITs that are on a discount and, and that I think have been unfairly undervalued by the market. My worst investments, well, I've got two, and I don't think they worked out very well, but for different reasons. So firstly, I bought Apple shares last year in 2020. This was a classic case of FOMO. You know, I saw the share price of Apple rising. I felt as if their underlying business model was only going to go from strength to strength. It it just seemed like it had unstoppable momentum. And so I bought the shares when they split. And then that was a really bad decision because I think that after that, we saw a huge correction in their shares uh, and they have never really fully recovered from that point. They dropped 6.7%, I think, uh, the day after I I bought the shares. I mean, my only consolation is that my stake was tiny and really it was just it was an exercise. It was it was a learning curve. Um, I didn't, didn't lose a huge amount of money from it, but it's something I would definitely not want to do again. Uh, and then for a different reason, I, I regret not so much buying into Greg's, but pulling out of Greg's too soon. So 2020 was the first year that I started buying individual shares. I wanted to do that because I was writing the book and because I wanted to understand that that sort of more granular day trading process a bit better. Greg's is a company that I love anyway. I mean, who doesn't love such trolls? But I actually <laughs> um, attended a presentation in recent times where uh, somebody presented the investment case for Greg's and I found it really compelling. Actually, it was um, some schoolgirls because I was um, judging a competition where groups were having to uh, present investment cases for certain companies. Uh, and one group presented the investment case for Greg's and, and, and I, was, I was really convinced by it. So so they must have done a very good job. I, I don't know if they won the competition, but they certainly came very highly in, in the judging process. Anyway, so that's when I bought. But then um, I had a wobble. You know, I, I doubted my conviction and I sold out too soon. And now Greg's is bouncing back. I mean, they did make some not particularly great decisions in 2020. I think they could have managed the lockdown situation better. I think there are ways they could have continued to operate. But nonetheless, I think sometimes, you know, buying brands you love 
is not something I generally recommend because I think that sometimes people get too hung up on, on companies that they've heard of. Oh, I've heard of Apple. I have an iPhone. That makes it a good company to invest in. Well, not necessarily. There could be lots of very boring companies and sectors out there that you need to go and find that are doing stuff that's behind the scenes, it's under the radar, and they could be much more compelling investments. But nonetheless, sometimes I do think that if you if you feel like you understand a company and how they operate and you and you understand the market that they're operating in, then then you can do worse than put your money where your tastes are, if you like. <laughs> Many thanks for your time today, Iona, and for sharing those valuable insights. Own It is out now and available from Harriman House or any good bookstores. Thank you all for listening and please feel free to like and subscribe to II Podcasts. You can find more by way of investment insights at ii.co.uk and if you're a beginner, we have plenty of jargon-free resources in our Knowledge Centre.